Let's pray. Lord, as we sang a few minutes ago, Lord Jesus, you were like a rose trampled on the ground. And Father, we don't understand how it pleased you, Father, to crush your son for us. We don't get it. But we gratefully acknowledge. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives in gratitude. And I pray, Father, as we talk about church discipline. Lord, we live in a world that's fallen and we are fallen. But we're saints. You've set us apart. Help us, Lord, to understand how all this works. And to use us as a mighty weapon to thwart Satan and his schemes. Because that's really what it's all about. Doing warfare. Help us, Lord. And we're going to thank you, Lord, and praise you for what you will do here. Open up this passage to us. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, pastor and author David Fitch tells this story. In 2010, a group of eight people from two churches felt called to the Detroit Boulevard neighborhood of Sacramento. I've never been there, don't know what it's like, but apparently it's pretty bad. It's known as one of the most notorious crime-ridden neighborhoods in all of Sacramento, in that area in Detroit. Each house in that neighborhood was a place of danger. Nevertheless, this group of eight decided to walk through the neighborhood, praying over each home and praying for the presence of Christ to reign over the violence, addiction, and satanic oppression. They begin walking through the neighborhood, praying over each home and rebuking the demonic strongholds of addiction and violence. One of the eight, former Sacramento police officer and gang detective Michael Zhang, reported that each time we prayed over the houses, we felt the weight of oppression becoming lighter. A woman from one of the houses confronted them, and when she discovered that they were praying for the community, she asked for healing, and God healed her. Yeah, wonderful. The group soon physically moved into the neighborhood and they started what they called Detroit Life Church. A couple of years later, a local newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, reported that there were no homicides or robberies or sex crimes and only one assault in the Detroit Boulevard between 2013 and 2014. Hmm. Detroit Boulevard had been transformed by a small group of people who began their ministry in the neighborhood by praying around houses and streets and parks for the power of Satan to be vanquished. Indeed, that's what happened. Now, any Christian knows, or at least ought to know, the reality of the unseen world. The spiritual forces bent on destroying individual followers of Jesus. And these same forces are out to destroy the entire church as well. Although we do know that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Scripture has some significant things to say about our battle in the unseen realm. Now, Jesus called the enemy of our souls the devil and Satan. And there is a real Satan. There is a real devil. Do you believe this? It's not just a force. It is a person. It's a person. And we have a whole horde of demons as well. 
Paul labeled the enemies, principalities and powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Now, as Pastor Fitch implied, it is possible to overcome the forces of evil. Again, do you believe this? It's possible. When a soldier is in a firefight, weaponry is a most precious asset. For those of us who've been in the military, we understand this. But with spiritual battles, our enemy is invisible. We can't use normal weapons on the devil and his hordes. If we want to get victory in the spiritual world, we must use the weaponry the Lord provides. So what are these weapons? Prayer for one. And John mentions two more weapons in Revelation. The blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the saints. And in our passage for today, 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11, we will discover another extremely powerful weapon, tailor-made to enable the church of Jesus Christ to engage, as it were, in hand-to-hand combat with the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. And though this weapon is powerful, to our detriment, though, it, it goes largely unused. At first glance, it seems like it's not a, a weapon at all. But without its use, the enemy has a field day for the church. And oddly, this weapon is actually painful to the user. Painful, but again, its use is absolutely vital if we want to achieve victory over the enemy. What is this weapon? Church discipline. So let's read about it in our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So if you don't have it out yet, please do that. Uh, paper or pixel, whichever. So 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Paul writes, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, before we talk about this powerful spiritual weapon we call church discipline, let me remind us of the backstory of this passage. Remember that Paul was in Ephesus, a city on the western coast of what is called Turkey, what we know as Turkey. It was there that he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians. And we studied 1 Corinthians for a long time. Remember that? Remember those months? And this letter dealt with all sorts of problems, as we remember. Paul gave the letter to the team of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, who delivered that letter to the church in Corinth. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul gave them his travel plans, what he was going to do, how he was going to interact with them. He wanted to spend time with them, collect the offering earmarked for the saints in Israel because of the famine that was there at that point. And then to be on his way, having received and given spiritual refreshment to one another. 
But he wasn't going to go there right away, though, he said, because there is a big, wide-open door of ministry in Ephesus. Many opportunities there. And there were many adversaries as well. Seemingly, though, Paul liked it that way. See, because Paul was a spiritual warrior. He loved to get into the, into the warfare here. He understood the eternal truth that in the words of a great Scottish pastor named Eric Alexander, any time that the word of God is established, it will be opposed. But as fruitful as the ministry in and around Ephesus was, Paul found out that there were some incredibly difficult developments that were going on back in Corinth. Some had infiltrated the church in Corinth with false teachers and false gospels. Now, this got Paul's attention. So he dropped what he was doing in Ephesus. He boarded a quick boat to Corinth to deal with those who were teaching that false gospel. And he came into the doors of the meeting places with spiritual guns ablazing. He had his way with those teachers. And then he left. Carnage all around him, spiritually speaking. He returned to Ephesus, but he was convinced that things were not how they needed to be in Corinth. The false so-called super apostles still had the influence and did a good job at undermining Paul's authority along with the gospel that he preached. And so Paul wrote them an impassioned, tear-stained letter, worded so strongly, he said later on, and we'll discover this, that he even regretted that he, he wrote it that way. Well, Word got back to Paul about how the Corinthians received that particular letter. And he began to deal with some of the fallout over this. And so Paul wrote yet another letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. So that's, again, the backstory. Now, I just mentioned that the false, impo- uh, false apostles influenced the Corinthians in a major way. And our passage today reflects this. Apparently, a certain individual a brother in Christ there in Corinth, and most likely a person that people looked up to. You know, we will call that in the organizational realm the, uh, the informal leader. People looked up to this man. He was influenced by these false teachers, so much so that he began to side with them, and he began to speak out strongly against Paul and his authority, and again, the gospel that he was preaching. Now, we're not told what set this guy up that made him so receptive to the false teachers. Now, the learned people who study this for a living gave several suggestions. Now, it may have been that Paul's, you know, that Paul took such a hard-line stance on holy living. Remember how Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in relationship to the one who had a sexual relationship with his stepmother. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, You're arrogant. You, you, you think you're spiritually progressive? You're arrogant over this. You should mourn over this sin that you're allowing to run rampant. Well, perhaps this man was one of the arrogant ones, thinking, hey, we're so enlightened, everything's great. But he was, may have been arrogant and ignorant about the responsibility he had to the Lord to live like a son of God. And by the way, all of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, guess what? We are called to live holy lives, are we not? Every one of us. He might have been so enamored, though, with the grace of God that he was living in an unbalanced life. 
Or maybe he was a Christian who thought that offering meat sacrifice to idols and visiting the many temples in Corinth was okay. But the bottom line is that we really don't know who this brother was. Again, we know he's a brother. We know he's a Christian. Why he would have sided with these so-called super false apostles. What seems to have happened here is that Paul's severe letter hit its mark, though, in the lives of the leadership of the church. See, they were strengthened in their spirit, and they recommitted themselves to the true gospel and the authority that the Lord gave Paul. They were able to rally the Christians in the church to the place where most of them recommitted themselves to the true gospel and the authority that the Lord gave Paul as well. It was as though that, that some of them woke up from their spiritual slumber. Again, remember how Paul had to chide them in 1 Corinthians. Some of them were not born again by the Spirit of God even. They were just kind of attaching themselves to the church, but they weren't part of the real church of Jesus. Some of them lived lives less than worthy of the gospel. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he said, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some of them have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Now, you know how some people, right? Not everyone, of course, but some people who have come out of destructive lifestyles or habits like that that just kind of destroy their lives, they become the most radical against those very lifestyles that they just come out of or those habits. You know, for example, who are some of the worst on those who smoke? Ex-smokers, right? Some of them are like that. Or who are the ones most zealous to rescue Muslims? Muslim background believers. And it may have been the case here with this guy. See, these revived Christians probably went after this informal leader, this powerful but misguided believer, and they raked him over the coals. And as one person put it, they landed on him like a falling sail. They exercised severe church discipline against him maybe not allowing him to participate in some of the social activities of the church or not allowing him to participate in the Lord's Supper or maybe a host of other things that they didn't allow him to do. And they were pouring it on him. And Paul was informed about it. And here's his counsel in verse 6 about how they should handle him. He says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Enough, Paul said. Stop. Stop. You've done your job. It's enough. Somehow the apostle detected this wayward Christian has actually now turned the corner. How Paul knew this is unclear. Perhaps Paul received revelation from the Lord about this guy. Or perhaps through talking with the church leaders in Corinth, maybe through some short letters, has gone back and forth through their their system of of how to get the letters back and forth. He understood, you know, that this guy was now okay. But regardless of how Paul knew, now he gives his way ahead to the Corinthians about this guy in verses 7 to 10. Let's look at that. So now you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, would I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything? 
has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So let's back up now and get the big picture of what's happening here before we move on to the point that church discipline is a powerful spiritual weapon to put down the enemy. So we start off, a sinning Christian has been confronted. It was a public sin. In this case, this Christian denounced Paul's authority and may have planted seeds of lawlessness. These seeds, if left unchecked, would have led at least some of the Corinthians to embrace a false gospel and maybe others to live as though they were not Christians. The Corinthians severely rebuked this sinning brother, maybe a little bit too severely. And now they needed to back off a little bit. The rebuke had its desired effect. And this man saw the error of his ways and rebellion against Paul and ultimately against the the authority that the Lord gave him. So ultimately it was against the Lord. Because the Corinthians exercised church discipline, this man experienced sorrow over his sin and repented. And now the body of Christ, they needed to stop rebuking him and started to love on him and welcome him warmly so that all of them would happily live together in unity under submission to divine authority. And as a body, they were to formally and publicly forgive this man and fully restore this man into fellowship, into the church. As I mentioned several times, this is church discipline and an example of how it was and supposed to be done. Of course, the situation was a bit different than what Jesus described in Matthew 18. Remember how he said this. He says, if your brother sins against you one-on-one, go to him, right? And then get it, get it squared away. But this wasn't the case. This was a sin that was committed in public for all to see. It was a sin that caused public disturbance and quite possibly divisiveness. But thankfully, there was a good result, wasn't there? The sinning brother heard the complaint and repented of his sin. And now he needed to know something desperately, that his spiritual siblings accepted him back. But the process was not a happy one, was it? It was painful. Let's look again at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. There's pain in this, literally, in the original language, literally lingering pain. In verse 7, there is lingering sorrow. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul said, in essence, your rebuke did what it was supposed to do. Now don't shoot your wounded brother. Ever, Ever notice that? Ever notice how some churches do that? You know, they, get, they rebuke that man, they rebuke that woman too severely. You know, and that's why people say infamously the church is the only army that shoots their wounded. I'm reminded of a proverb in this particular sense. In Proverbs 27, 6, a very appropriate truth that comes to mind in relation to a scenario like this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Notice that, wounds of a friend. Indeed, a true friend risks a relationship to genuinely love his or her friend by giving him or her what they need, even when it wounds them. But the friend who wounds 
also has the proper bandages to bind up those very wounds. But on the other hand, the other part of that proverb goes like this. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We can say it like this by way of application. A friend is not really a friend at all if all he wants to do is make the other person feel better. They follow the wounds of a friend. Well, so far we have the mechanics of church discipline here. We have the who, a sinning brother and his fellow Christians. We have the what, sin is committed and rebuke is given. We have the when in the context of the body life of the church when Christians come together. We have the how, a rebuke with the hope that the erring brother would repent and be restored to fellowship, which is exactly what happened, or at least the rebuke happened and the person understood it. But what we don't have in these verses, up to verse 10, is the why. Why should church discipline take place? What gives anybody the right to inflict pain on somebody else? What business is there of anybody else of how a Christian should live his or her life? Doesn't church discipline mean that one person is judging another? After all, didn't Jesus say, don't judge lest you be judged? These and so many more questions arise in the minds of many Christians today, don't they? How do I know this? I've heard them. (laughs) And you have too, haven't you? And especially when a Christian is on the receiving end of church discipline. But why does the Lord Jesus tell us to engage in church discipline? Why does Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, include this episode in this letter right here? Why does he do it? And for that matter, why did Paul forcefully tell the Corinthians in his first letter to exercise church discipline regarding the ancestral relationship that they were so erroneously arrogant about? He didn't have to. The Spirit could have omitted that. But it was included here for our instruction. Well, the answer to all this is found in verse 11. Let's look at it. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. In short, church discipline is a weapon of spiritual warfare, not to be used on one another, but to be used against the real enemy, Satan himself. He has, in his combating with us, premeditated but very successful schemes. So let's talk about this. Let's break it down. See, when actual sin is committed by a Christian against another Christian, I'm not not talking about hurt feelings. I'm talking about actual violations of Scripture. Remember, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Then it needs to be taken care of. Lovingly raising the issue, admitting and confessing sin and guilt needs to happen with reconciliation as the goal. Not blasting people, but reconciliation. At this point, though, let me remind us of some foundational truth here. All of us have a nature that is bent towards sin. Anybody disagree with that? We're all bent towards sin, even as Christians. Isn't that true? All of us who are Christians have the power not to sin. Anybody disagree with that? In fact, Scripture tells us if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. We don't have to sin. Do you believe that? 
But, tragically, none of us does this perfectly, right? Sin is a serious thing, though. All sin, from the yielding of a relatively small thing in the mind to the most heinous of mass murders, all sin in attitude or word or deed is damning. It is destructive. It destroys relationships both with God and with people. Sin is a big deal. The story is told of a married couple spending time together in their garden, and they came across a serpent. I don't like this story because I don't like snakes. The husband, hero that he was, grabbed a shovel, and he decapitated a four-foot-long western Diamondback rattlesnake. Must have been in California or something. I don't know. For some strange reason, though, after he did this, he picked up the head of the snake. And you know what's, you know what's coming, right? True to form, it sank its fangs, even though it was decapitated, into the flesh of this man and released a near-deadly dose of venom. About two miles into the drive to the hospital, this woman's husband began to have seizures. He lost his vision, and unknown to them, began bleeding internally. So she met up with an ambulance and then a helicopter, which flew the 40-year-old man to the hospital as his organs were already shutting down. Hmm. All because he picked up the head, the snake. But spiritually speaking, though, This is the kind of thing that tragically we do too often, don't we? The Lord Jesus severed the head of the snake when he died on the cross, did he not? And even though the devil's head is severed from his body, he can still inflict deadly poison upon us. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 6, that our old self was crucified with Christ. And as a result, the body of sin would be brought to nothing. We are not under the dominion of sin any longer. That's the truth of the matter. But what do we do so often as Christians? How often are we deceived into thinking that playing with sin, picking up that severed head, is okay? Or that somehow we can or must handle it because it's there? Though we have power to overcome sin, we yield to it, don't we? By playing around with evil. The truth is, Jesus' death has severed the head of the serpent. Let's leave the head alone. In our little story, what should the husband have done? He had the proper instrument to take care of it. He could have dug a hole and just kind of put the head in there, covered it up, but he didn't, did he? Let's keep this in mind as we continue to look at the why of church discipline. When we refuse to operate the weapon of church discipline, what happens here? We allow sin to run amok in our midst. It's as though we see the severed head of the serpent in the hand of the one who sinned with the fangs stuck deep, and we do nothing to help our brother or sister. Now, we know that it would be painful to pull out the fangs. We know that the possibility that person will die if we don't help him. But because... The episode will be painful. We do nothing. But time is of the essence. And when the spiritual poison takes over, there is sickness in the body of Christ. There is division. And then we are outwitted, literally exploited by Satan when that happens. It's his schemes. His exploitation is threefold. 
First, Satan's scheme includes Christians turning away from God in rebellion, which results in sin. Second, when a Christian is in rebellion against God's authority, it's just a matter of time till he or she sins against another Christian. And when you have another Christian sinning against you, what do you normally do? Respond in kind, right? So there's now another sin there. And that results in division in the body of Christ. These, my brothers and sisters, are the unadulterated, premeditated schemes of Satan. Every time we fail to act, the enemy exploits us. How do we feel about that? Separation is the name of his designs. The Christian separates himself in his fellowship from God because of sin. And then separation in his fellowship from his spiritual siblings are sure to follow. So what's the cure? What's the cure? Put into use the powerful weapon of church discipline. Spiritual warfare, we got to go here. So let me take a couple minutes to remind us of what it's all about. Again, the Lord Jesus commanded us to engage in church discipline. We must take care of sin in our midst. We are children of a holy, holy, holy God. And that means we are to increasingly reflect his holiness. That means that we must take care of sin when it rears its ugly head. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He also said, love one another. And love means that we take the fangs of the serpent out of the spiritual flesh, even though it's going to be painful. When Syrian rears its ugly head, Galatians 6, 1 and 2 kicks in. Tells us how to deal with it. And he says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, spirit-controlled, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Get that? Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. A spiritually controlled Christian needs to make the first move. Go to that individual in love toward that sinning brother or sister. It needs to be done with the spirit of, I'm not immune to your sin. I'm just as capable of sinning this sin as you are sinning. And then you help your brother or sister, keeping in mind that you are helping him or her bear the burden. How often has this happened to you? You and a fellow Christian are having some fellowship. And you notice that your fellow Christian is a little bit troubled. And so you ask a question. What's wrong? What happens? It just gushes out, doesn't it? The story gets told, sometimes with a lot of tears. And you say nothing. And you actively are there with your brother or sister. You offer very few words. And then after a time, maybe a long time, what does he or she say to you? You've helped me so much. Thank you. Has it ever happened to you? See, ministry in large measure simply means that you and I are just there doesn't take any special training, just being there, engaging in the privilege of helping them bear their burden. And now when it comes to a sinning brother or sister, sin must be dealt with, though. It's not fun. As we've been saying throughout this message, sin is painful. 
But for the sake of the body of Christ, we must help our brother or sister deal with it. And how do we do this? Whether sin is individual or corporate, sin must be named, must be confessed, and it must be repented of. And what's repentance? Simply turning around and going away from it. That's what repentance is. Again, we're talking about actual sin. We're talking about actual violations of Scripture. We're not talking about chemistry deficiency here, right? Or personality differences. We're talking about, hey, listen, brother or sister, here's what Scripture says. Here's what you're doing. It doesn't match up. But we go to that person lovingly, gently, but we still must do it. When violation has happened and confession is made, then what do we do? Forgive. Forgiveness needs to take place. And here is where I think many of us are missing a bigger picture of what forgiveness really is all about. So let's talk about that a minute. First, forgiveness does not require emotion. Did you know that? It does not require emotion. See, forgiveness is really a money term. It literally means I release you of the debt that you owe me. See, when I sin against someone, though, what do I do? I break their heart. When you sin against me, I sin against you, we break hearts, don't we? Imagine an exquisite piece of crystal. Delicate. Beautiful. Unique. Only one of the kind in the world. It's priceless. This crystal represents your heart. Represents my heart. And when I sin against someone, I hold that heart in the hand and I sin. And that crystal then goes to the floor, the marble floor, breaks, shatters into a million pieces. Is there any way that I can put that crystal heart, your heart back together, even if I have all the pieces? So here I am. I'm the one sinned against. What do I do with this? Well, there's three things. Is there any amount of money, first of all, that can be paid? No. So what do I do? Well, I could demand of you that you try to pay me back for the rest of your days. Doesn't work. Can't happen. But how many people do that? Or... I can take it lightly. I can say, you know what? It's no big deal. Sweep it under the rug, so to speak. And then what happens? For the rest of my days, I'm looking to fill that hole in my soul. Anything, something that will fill it, but it won't fill. It's there. There's a gap there. It won't work. Or the debt can be canceled. You can write across my bill, canceled. You owe me nothing. And now, live the consequences of the broken heart that I gave you if I've sinned against you. But you no longer now demand that I pay you back. That's what forgiveness means. You still have that hole in your soul. But you no longer demand I pay you back. And now, you're coming to grips with this thing. thing. I now have a hole in my soul. But I'm not going to go try to look to fill it with something, with anything desperately to make it happen. And though painful, this is what forgiveness looks like. 
And you might be saying, that's impossible. I could never do that. Maybe I can forgive once, but I can never do it over and over and over again. I can never cancel somebody's debt over and over again. You're right. You can't. But for a Christian, Jesus in you can. See, Jesus' payment on the cross is a complete payment. And we can look to him to fill the hole in our soul. We rely upon him to give us the ability to cancel the debt over and over again. And this is what happens, my friends, every day in North Korea and China. When they get to those so-called re-education camps and they get abused over and over again, what happens to our brothers and sisters? They rely upon the Lord to give them what they need to cancel the debt of their persecutors, of their tormentors, again and again and again. Why? They cancel that debt that others owe them. Why? Because Jesus has canceled their debt. Remember how Jesus was on the cross, and he said what? Father, forgive them. And by the way, in the original it says, he continued to say this over and over and over again. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Over and over. But here's how it looks in practical terms. Forgiveness is a transaction. Okay, let's say that I sin against you and you want to get this taken care of. And then the question is asked, can you find it in your heart to forgive me? And if, if you can, then the agreement is made. Yes, I forgive you. So now what happens? It's now a dead issue. No longer spoken of ever again. How often do we bring it up though? We resurrect it. Forgiveness means I cancel the debt. It's done. You cancel the debt. It's done. No more spoken of. But now what happens? The same thing happens 10 minutes down the road. That's a new issue. Do the same thing. Cancel the debt over and over again. But now what happens? I, what if I, if I feel like I need to talk to somebody about this? Well, guess what you do? Who do you talk to? The Lord. Don't talk to the individual. Talk to the Lord about it because it's a dead issue. Don't talk to anybody else but the Lord about it. Because once the agreement's made, once the transaction's done, it's done. The debt's been canceled, true? Just like the Lord does to us. Does he bring it up to us? No. We do the same thing to one another. One other thing. This does not require forgetfulness. How many people say, well, I can forgive, but I can't forget? Good. That's okay. As long as we remember that forgiveness is an agreement to never bring it up again. You can remember it. It's like, you know, how can you, how can you forget somebody breaking your heart? You can't. But we don't bring it up again. That's the issue. Then what's left after we do this? Now we love the person. Remembering that love is a verb, right? We do loving things for others. That's what agape love is all about. So when forgiveness takes place, then restoration happens in church discipline. We restore the one who is forgiven by accepting him back into the fellowship and back into our relationship. 
as brothers and sisters. But now there's a difference, though, between restoring a person to a certain place of ministry and accepting that person back into fellowship. For example, if I, as your pastor, ever commit adultery, as in I am with a woman other than my wife, I'm now permanently disqualified from the ministry. There's a lot of pastors who say, no, no, I can do this and I can get restored, etc. No, they can't. Scripture speaking, that's not right. Can't do it. Now, I, I'm a Christian. If I commit adultery, I'm still a Christian. But I'm now disqualified permanently from the ministry. There's not enough pastors that have enough guts to do that. But that's what they're supposed to be doing. Now, finally, there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. And here's where a lot of people struggle. I can forgive, but can I trust? Well, trust, once it's gone, takes a long time to build back, doesn't it? There's a difference. But this trust now is built on forgiveness. It takes a while, but make it happen. Continue the process. Learn how to trust this person. Once they have shattered trust. You can do this based on forgiveness. I'll never forget it. There was a man that I worked with in a ministry. He was living a double life. For a while, I had no idea, but he got found out. I worked with him for months, and he finally revealed his double life. He revealed his sin, and I asked him to step down from ministry. And through tears, church discipline was done. This man confessed and repented of his sin. And to this day, to my knowledge, this man and his relationships have been restored. It's a wonderful thing. I don't think he's involved in ministry, but at least his relationships have been restored. He is a Christian. But after I asked him to step down, to my amazement, he didn't leave the church. They didn't leave. And one day I asked him, how is it that exercise church discipline, but you didn't go away? You still stayed. And here's what he said. What you did to me showed me that you love me. We can't leave. This church is our family. That's what church discipline is supposed to do. And with that, Satan's premeditated scheme was thwarted, if only for one fellowship, if only for one family, for a time. But the battle continues to rage Because the powerful weapon of spiritual warfare, church discipline was exercised, and we were then able to outwit Satan in that one scenario. Because we exercised church discipline, the devil was defeated, if only for a short time. Let's continue to take the battle to the enemy by dusting off and using this powerful weapon of warfare, lest the devil outwit us and exploit us. Let's love one another enough, care enough to confront one another when needed, and let's be lightning quick to forgive and give one another every benefit of the doubt, for love never gives up. Let's pray. Father, this was a hard lesson today because it's sin. deals with sin. And Lord, none of us like to talk about sin. We like to be encouraged. We like to be told good stuff. But so often, Lord, we skirt around 
as it were, what life really consists of in so many ways. We don't like to deal with sin. We hate it. But Lord Jesus, when you hung on the cross, you dealt with sin. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to deal with sin the same kind of way, seriously. Help us, Lord, as brothers and sisters to take sin seriously. And that when we see it in another brother or sister, that we would be able to love that person enough because we built a relationship with that person to say, you know what, brother or sister, help me to help, allow me to help you. Help us, Lord, to enact forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to, to, to be the agents of reconciliation in our fellowship. I thank you, Father, for this time. Even though this was a difficult thing, it's painful. Help us, Lord, to deal with the pain. May you bring the healing, we pray, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we, as we go turn to our giving, that you will help us to give because we're grateful for what you've done for us. I pray, Father, that you'll help us to sing now with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in worship to you. And we'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.